And he walks in, he's got a more expensive mic than both of us. I mean, a man with his own name press has to have his own mic. Great to meet you, Peter. I was really excited when Chris said that he knew you and was like, yeah, we're going to get Peter Cooper on. And I was like, you mean that guy who does all those newsletters that I've been reading for years? It's such a fantastic resource. I met Peter a few times at our local hackathon, the only hackathon in our county. And we're one of the biggest counties in the UK, but very vastly dense. Yeah. Rural. If you're from the UK, we would say we're from farmer's country. And what we mean by that is if there's going to be a parade of vehicles, it's normally tractors. I often call it the Kansas of England, just to put it into context. I went to school in the Central Valley, which is like an hour away from the actual Bay Area. When you say from California, people usually think of like San Francisco. So it's the same thing. I call it the South of California. What do you see as your zone as a programmer? How'd you get into programming? What's like your kind of professional experience as a programmer? I'm curious to kind of get that background. So my background really just goes all the way back to the start when I was given all sorts of various toys and microcomputers and all sorts of things in the early 80s, which is when I was born. I just messed around with them from like day dot almost because my dad was heavily into that type of thing. And, you know, I was programming before I even remember like my memory can go back to. Obviously, it was all like complete rubbish like it wasn't anything good you know 10 print hello world 20 go to 10 and all that kind of stuff but that's kind of where the seeds were sown i just got into programming all the way through like my teenage years i was doing like demo coding and doing a lot of x86 pascal turbo pascal like stuff that's basically antiquated now but i kind of had a taste for it but it wasn't what i wanted to do as a job i actually wanted to become a lawyer so that makes me an even worse person than people probably think i am it didn't quite pan out. The whole dot-com sign of new media thing happened in the late 90s and because I had the skills to do it. And my parents said, you're not going to sit around all summer holiday waiting to go to college. You're going to get a job. Next day, I'm like, oh, I've got a job at a web design consultancy. They're like, okay, we thought you were going to get a job at Woolworths or somewhere, but you know, stacking shelves or something. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to be a web designer now. I did that for a bit. It didn't really pan out too great just because I'm ridiculously difficult to manage. And I ended up working for myself. I've pretty much done that ever since, kind of on and off. I just kind of moved from language to language. I was really into Perl for several years, building server-side stuff, which is kind of funny because a lot of the stuff from back then, some of the patterns have looped back around now with the whole serverless thing. But I moved from there to Ruby, saw Rails, thought that was fantastic, learned Ruby after trying to implement Rails in Perl first and completely failing at that. I just went from there building web apps and building stuff with RSS and really getting to the whole web kind of ecosystem of building apps and releasing them. From that, I went to blogging. I was heavily into Ruby and Rails and not many people were blogging about it. And from there, I went into email. And it's kind of been like just weird, random steps of like, oh, I like doing this. Now let's add this bit on. Now let's add this bit on. Let's add this bit on. And then I've kind of ended up running 12 email newsletters. And it all kind of goes back to that you know initial just screwing around on a machine. No plan to this. Very non-deliberate. Free flow, you might want to say. Yeah, I'm terrible um, at planning. It's kind of like you just work on something until you find what's right. And I found that with Everfund. We've gone through like five ideas, five iterations of working out what we want to do and what we're passionate about. That's the hardest thing, really. You still got to make money. You still got to learn and you still got to, you know, be a member of society. So can we call those pivots then? We're going to be trendy. 
I was actually curious to ask about that pivot because it sounds like you got into Ruby on Rails back when it was just first coming out. So I would imagine that was probably around, you know, 2005, right? Yeah, so it's like November, no, I think it's December 2004, but yeah, pretty much 2005. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then did you or have you or will you pivot to this whole JavaScript thing? Do you still kind of see yourself as just an old school Rails developer? Have you moved more into the JavaScript ecosystem? Because this is an interesting theme that we see a lot in terms of some of the frameworks we talk about is a lot of old school Ruby Rails developers who enjoyed it, but feel like they need to move beyond it. Both Tom and Branch and I feel like have this sort of opinion. So I'd be kind of curious to get your thoughts there. I've moved beyond it, but not necessarily in the direction that you're talking about. I would say like of my projects, perhaps like 20% of them involve Rails in some way or another. Like all the rest are either in different languages or they're still in Ruby predominantly, but they're not using Rails. So they're using Sinatra. I built a service from scratch, that type of thing, building kind of more back-end APIs and things like that. And even building serverless things. Ruby is a first-class language on AWS Lambda now, has been for the last couple of years, and works very, very well for that type of environment. And I know that's not kind of like what perhaps the trendy thing to do and it's not what things like Redwood JS and whatever are taking that approach, but Ruby works really well in those contexts. It has, you know, fantastic startup time, it may not have the best raw performance, but in terms of just being able to get something up and running quickly and have it perform a reasonable standard, it's absolutely perfect. And because I've done the language for 15, 16 years, I've kind of become very au fait with it. So I can immediately turn to it and do something that maybe it would take me a little bit longer to do with a more suitable language, let's say. I'm pretty much stuck in Ruby being my mother tongue, as it were, it's not my first language, but it kind of has now become my main language. But I dabble with, you know, Python, JavaScript and whatever as and when I need it. You know, that works quite well. Me and Chris talk about this a lot. Chris is very much a monoglot in that he loves writing JavaScript TypeScript. I'm more of a, a polyglot. I like more different languages. And I think it's really cool with both WebAssembly and all of these different runtimes in serverless. It seems like it's getting to be better and better for people who just want to write whatever language they do want to write, that the tooling is kind of slowly starting to accommodate a lot of these different languages and ecosystems. And it's kind of like they're all getting in at different levels and at different amounts. And there's people now who are implementing PHP runtimes. It's really cool for me because, like I said, I enjoy the kind of more polyglot type programming. I don't have a problem with polyglot programming. There's just this thing in my mind that's, why do I need to go learn another language? JavaScript does it. It's messy and it's scrapey, but it works and it works on everything just about. Why do I need to go somewhere else? But in the pre-conversation, Anthony said to me that if I started my career 10 years earlier, I would be a Ruby developer. <laughs> Something that I don't understand, Ruby's the language and Rails is the processor the task processor rails is basically just a pile of libraries glommed together into a framework so active record that you've probably heard of is like the orm you've got action view and action cable which does the web socket stuff and it's, it's always different things put together into one opinionated framework which should sound very familiar to you chris yeah exactly so yeah it's just bringing lots of different things together and ruby is just the underlying language it's a bit like with javascript you've got javascript but then you've got other things on top of that like Redwood.js, for example, which, you know, is built up of various pieces. What do you think of people like DHH? David Heinemeyer Hansen. You know, what do you think? Do you think that Die Hard Ruby is still a real, I would want to say, 
company presence. A thing. Most companies, yeah. <laughs> most companies tend to just be like, we use mean. JavaScript, React, and Mongo, and everything else is gone out the window these days. But DHH over at Basecamp have gone solely down Ruby, to what I understand. Yeah, and he owns lots of supercars and all that type of thing. So, like, I don't know. I'm just, I guess, I'm just making a little point that uh, you know he might focus on one technology or another, but he's extremely successful at it. And at the end of the day, for him, it's all about the well, two things about the end result, but then it's also about his experience of having to work on these products. So sometimes he does seem to choose technologies that aren't necessarily the most ideal. So, like, I believe Basecamp uses MySQL very heavily, which isn't necessarily the best option nowadays for that type of thing. But the fact is it does what they need it to do, they can make it work, and he makes tons of money off of doing it. So as long as he's kind of got those two legs of the stool, like, you know, you might have three legs on this stool, which is one where you're using the exact correct tool and you're getting everything formally correct, making money and having a good time. Like, he's got the making the money and having a good time, so, like, who cares about formal correctness? That seems to be very much his approach to a lot of things, which was kind of echoed like when he began doing rails like he was doing all these talks like fu to java and this that and the other when java was seen as being like the way of building these big enterprisey kind of web apps at the time like he just chosen that approach but i think it resonates with a lot of people because a lot of people feel the same way especially the most kind of pragmatic amongst us see that like well yeah okay you can be successful you can have a good time let's give it a go so he very much emphasizes that and says, look, you can just throw CPU at a performance problem, or you can throw more servers at a performance problem. Perhaps the funniest example of that was many, many years ago, Ruby was really hard to deploy on a server. This was before things like Passenger existed. Um, there were no serverless platforms or anything. This is like 2005. And so you'd have to use this thing called Fast CGI on Apache, and I think Lightspeed was another HTTP server at the time. And what Fast CGI would do was you'd run your process, you'd run your Rails process like as a server process and fast CGI would connect to it and then kind of just keep piping through requests to it like a CGI process, but that was running permanently. And it had so many memory leaks in it that there was this story going around that they had to restart their rails app 400 times a day just to stop the memory accumulation going through the roof. And there's been some argument as to how true that level was, but it was hundreds of times per day. And he's like, but it worked like, so <laughs> we don't have that problem anymore, but it was a problem. And But it's just pragmatism at the end of the day, overall else, I think. Yeah, what I appreciate about the way he approached it, and this is like me kind of looking back at this history, is he was really good at just kind of like demonstrating what working with the tool was actually like. I've had so many different podcast interviews where I've been talking about Redwood and kind of explaining it to people and they, everyone goes back to that Rails demo. Like it, it really was super pivotal in terms of showing people not only that you could do it that quickly, but how to do it that quickly because you could just watch the video and then fire it up yourself and you know, you'd probably hit a bunch of roadblocks in the process, but you could still follow along and kind of get to the same result. And that's something that I've really kind of taken and tried to run with with Redwood is like doing these meetup talks and going out and just kind of showing people like, all right, here's how you fire up a blank application. Here's how you build it out. Here's how you deploy it. You've got to think, actually, it was a perfect storm back when Rails came out because Rails came out sort of in 2004, became started to become popular January, February 2005. And something else happened in the start of 2005 that a lot of people forget, and that's when YouTube began. There was suddenly this place that people could share videos of things. 
screencasting kind of almost became a thing in that 2005 and he was very early on with that whole kind of demonstrate something like there were people that would record videos but it wasn't a thing to do you wouldn't necessarily think oh i've got this thing let's record the screen like that was a kind of a alien concept at the time so he was thinking ahead of the curve there and almost like invented screencasting to a certain extent he's carried on doing it though which is the core cool thing so i don't know if you've heard about the hotwire thing that he's been working on and has released over the last few weeks but if you go to hotwire.dev it's kind of like the ruby slash rails approach to doing modern web sorry front-end apps and everything on there he's done yet another 12-minute video where instead of creating a blog in 15 minutes which was the 2005 thing it's now creating a chat application that has all those bells and whistles of it doesn't refresh the page and you can have like 10 different clients open they all talk to each other and so he's basically just taken exactly the same model of like oh i made this work with this screencast now let's make a 10 times more complicated app in exactly the same amount of time. And so it kind of shows you the efficiency over time of the underlying processes, which I just thought was really cool when I watched it. Yeah, that's something right now we're talking about in Redwood is trying to build out a larger, more complex example application kind of for that exact reason so that you have something that you can demonstrate that's really sophisticated. Because right now we have like we do use a blog and it's more so because it's easy to understand and to wrap your mind around. But at the same time, we always say that a blog is not a very good representation of what it's actually capable of doing. But I actually want to get back and talking about Hotwire because this is obviously a big topic right now and sits at a lot of interesting intersections between things like server rendered components and this kind of tension between the front end and the back end and how far we go into the server. I'd love to get just first your kind of like basic definition of what it is, how you would explain it to someone from ground zero who's never even heard of it. So I must admit, I've not even used it yet. So I've literally, I've watched the videos or whatever. I'm, all my Rails apps are very old fashioned kind of Rails apps where it just works in the very typical crud kind of fashion. You know, you put together your, your Ruby code and it has views and you click on a link and it renders a new view. Like that's that old school server side app. What Hotwire does is it extends that in a variety of different ways by basically you keep the server first kind of approach. You build everything server side, but everything kind of gets decorated with JavaScript that allows it to do certain things like reload parts of the page without reloading the entire page or hooking up to a WebSockets kind of broker essentially that then sends messages to you and can update things on the page in a dynamic way so just like a term that i've kind of got in my head for this is what i would call like front end first and back end first and i think if you take something like say redwood js for example it's almost like front end first because you're basically building something that's front end but then it can kind of also run bits on the back end but you're looking at it from a front end down perspective whereas something like hotwire has some of the same kind of ideas but it's the server pushing things into the front end that then suddenly work. They take totally different approaches, but you can end up with similar outcomes. But developers are having to pick between the two. I don't envy because you could either pick based on your kind of cultural allegiance. So you could say, look, I'm a Ruby developer. I'm a Rails developer. This is what I understand. And I'm going to put my toes into the front end very timid fashion by sticking with the Rails approach to it. Or you could be someone who's really on the front end doing existing like Jamstack stuff and say not really big fan of the back end but i need to do some back end stuff let's keep this front end first approach and approach it from that direction yeah they're not like super compatible you can't really like take your code from one and like move it to the other very easily even if they were the same language if javascript had some equivalent of rails and hotwire and whatever which you could rig up using like express and stuff like that i guess but yeah the code doesn't really i think go across very well between those two mechanisms so yeah i think there's going to be a bit of a 
I don't really want to say like a war or anything, but it's it's going to be a big cultural issue, I think, as to which approach you take over the, the sort of the next few years. That was so interesting. I'm someone who spends a lot of time listening to podcasts from like Laravel and Elixir and all these kind of backend frameworks. And I'm someone who was trained in front end. Like I feel like I was kind of pushed into front end because that was like the career path that is given to you if you go to a boot camp today but like i've wanted to be a back-end developer this this whole time and so like i i feel this this tension so strongly like within myself and my own kind of career yeah i mean i guess one way of looking at it is just because i've been developing in some form or another for so long i've almost just stuck with the default approach to doing something that's kind of what like people think of ruby and rails as being super progressive and super modern and they are but within, within an older-fashioned context of building from the server first, the way that I would build a Ruby app and think about building a Ruby app isn't like substantially different to how I would think about building a Perl app in you know 1997, for example. It's very much thinking from that direction down. And so all this stuff that's come along in recent years, you know, I got my head around it and experimented and stuff like that, but it's a whole new way of doing things. And especially when you throw in things like CSS in JavaScript into the mix, it just like makes me want to facepalm a lot of the time but i know i understand the benefits but it's like we spent so long not mixing these things together and deliberately pulling them apart from the 90s when we had tables and bg color and all this kind of nonsense all jammed into html we ripped all that stuff apart with css and javascript and now it's like oh let's just mush it all together again it's like oh so yeah (laughs) there's there's definitely these funny cultural issues going on and stuff like that and yeah i've kind of got my head around it but it can be so exhausting to think about sometimes do you think that it also really depends on the developer at the same time for example majority of the time you write javascript you're probably writing it on a front end capable service and then you go now i need a back end so then you go to a back end and add express for example but to what i understand is ruby's more of a back end language that then they go now I need a front end. And then they shoehorn their front end in. And it's kind of like both of them are shoehorning the other end in the other. There were, though, correct me if I'm wrong, node developers, though, who thought of themselves as specifically, I am a JavaScript backend person. And that was a thing for a while that I feel like has almost kind of started to disappear a little bit just because the front end has eaten away so much. Yeah, and you've got Dino know. as well, which is playing in that space. I don't even know what a node developer is. Is it just someone that says, like, I use the node runtime it's someone who writes servers in javascript that's all it is <laughs> wouldn't they just be a back-end javascript engineer then that's how i would think yeah. about it yeah <laughs> but you were just saying because you were talking about how people who write javascript write the front end but i mean the thing yeah. is node has such a specific standard library and api to it that i think that's why you have to kind of identify as being a node developer rather than just a javascript developer because you can't necessarily take those things that are in the node world and apply them to another JavaScript backend system like Rhino, let's say, I think probably an example, which to be fair, there's not many of them. Node has basically taken over and that's part of the thing. It's like that's become the brand now for server-side JavaScript, which alternative implementations like Dino, for example, are trying to uh, correct, but I'm not quite sure whether they're going to achieve that. I'm very big into Dino. I did a, a talk for Paris Dino. I'm all in on Dino. Yeah, I've I've heard of a lot of people using it to build tools and stuff, which is kind of cool. Not for necessarily building web apps, but for building, you know, like, oh, I've got this file of whatever, I need to crunch it and move it here or there, that type of thing. 
Yeah, you can do it with oak is the closest equivalent to something like express, even though it's based more so on koa. And then Drash has the best docs and the fastest performance. I've kind of examined kind of like all the main web framework. So I'd say check out Oak and check out Drash if you're someone who wants to build an actual API with Dino. You just made me realize that Oak has to be an anagram of Koa then. Like Dino's an anagram of Node. Yeah, okay. That never even occurred to me. Like It's like how New Relic is an anagram of the founder's name. I didn't know that. Yeah, his name's Lucerne and uh, it's an anagram, New Relic. So yeah, there you go. Another piece of trivia for you. Something I was curious to talk to you about, I listened to an interview you did with Corey Quinn, and you guys had an interesting discussion about the nature of personal branding. What I kind of got from the conversation is you feel like you've built a really powerful kind of faceless empire, and you don't necessarily feel like Peter Cooper is a brand so much as Cooper Press is a brand. I think we just accidentally spoke about, it's one of those topics that you don't really sit and think about too much until someone kind of puts you on the spot. I've always tried to just keep myself out of the work to a certain extent, other than you know my insights and opinion and where I think I can add value to something. But I try and keep me as a, a person out of it because I assume people aren't interested. Like I'm not sort of sitting in the mirror looking at myself going, oh, you're so interesting. Like So I don't expect anyone else to be doing the same. But maybe this whole renaissance of newsletters that we're kind of seeing all over the place kind of shows that personality is important. And even people like Corey Quinn, for example, last week in AWS, if anyone's listening and hasn't heard of him, he rounds up AWS news on Twitter and in email. He's like super heavily personally invested in his business as a personality, complete with all of his snark and jokes and this, that and the other. And people just know him for that, whereas I'm not really known for any of that. I'm just known for I just get these things out every week and I do it reliably like which isn't super exciting at all but it has to be done so yeah it's got me thinking about like how can I inject more of myself into this but then I sit and think well do I need to so it's always a balancing act maybe what you should do first is the next time you publish a Ruby newsletter just put your face at the top of it and see if you go down or up in subscribers I know we were talking about Christian Roebuck earlier just a random name to throw out there you know the graphics that we put at the top of each issue? Like, yeah. yeah. We've sometimes, like, secretly hidden his face in certain issues. We sometimes do some fun stuff. But, yeah, I need to put myself in there properly rather than just messing around. This is one of the things about running your own business. You get to mess around a lot, which is quite fun. But sometimes you've got to get a bit serious. Robux's now a professional pizza maker. He is. Professional JavaScript developer and pizza maker. That's a combination that I don't think exists. He's a very special JavaScript developer. L? Is it L? L? It's not JavaScript. It's like Elm. Elm. Oh, Elm. Yeah. Oh, so that's something. Yeah. Functional language that compiles down to JavaScript. It's very interesting. It's based on Haskell. Yeah. He's very, very keen on that. I looked at it and it just wasn't for me whatsoever, but he's very bullish on that. What do you think the big thing will be in web development in the next five years? Agnostic of language. WebAssembly. Oh, yeah. No, like definitely. I've seen other people saying this as well. I don't think it's a particularly super amazing thing to be saying right now but i've seen people predicting that you know the next big thing in the javascript space will be something that's a bit like a reactor like but probably written in rust compiled down with WebAssembly, be super fast super light super tiny all that type of thing now that pretty much you need every single internet device under the sun runs WebAssembly in some form or another or at least something that's being used to access the web in anger anyway we'll generally support WebAssembly now like why not and we're seeing this massive boom in front-end web development of tools not being written in JavaScript anymore. Things like ES Build and there's a load of tools. I linked to them in JavaScript Weekly recently, but my memory is very poor with names of projects. 
But there's a whole bunch of different projects that like linters and bundlers and things that are written in Go, written in Rust, basically languages that are very, very fast once they're compiled. I can only see more of that occurring. Now, I don't reckon that you're going to write all of your front end kind of typical cruddy type stuff in Rust, for example. It's a little bit verbose. But to be the cogs in the front end engine, it kind of makes sense to use languages like Rust and Go. Probably less so Go because of the whole garbage collection thing. But with Rust, like I'm seeing so many people being won over by its kind of benefits and its speed that there's going to be more of this. So watch this space. WebAssembly, Rust, building tools, building front-end frameworks, things like that. It's going to happen. I think I just shot myself in the foot moment. I decided to look up WebAssembly compilers and I saw that Swift is a compiler. I listen to Apple podcasts and they're like, yeah, you could write a whole website in Swift these days. I was like, how do you do that? It's obviously compiled down to WebAssembly now. You can do the same from the .NET world as well. So this will bring a lot of people in that we perhaps, I don't, mean, I don't know what your connection with the .NET world is, but I feel like sometimes I see a lot of personalities that are in the .NET world who are massive and I'm like, I've never heard of you. Like, just because we're in totally different space. And they're like, you know, the opposite way around. Like, it's vice versa as well. But I think we're going to see more people from like those sorts of worlds. Like .NET people can come in with a tool called Blazor, which basically lets you use things like C Sharp, for example, in the front end and it all compiles down with WebAssembly. It's all supported by Microsoft. They're big on it. They're pushing it. We're going to have lots of interesting extra names and faces and ideas coming into, I'm not going to say our space, but coming into this broader front-end church. And it's going to be really fun, really interesting. It's not like when we had Flash, for example, people that did ActionScript. There was no ActionScript, JavaScript kind of thing. Like They're almost the same language, but... There was no real integration between the two. We're going to see that a lot more. WebAssembly is going to be that thing. It's not just going to be a technology. It's going to be a cultural thing that brings together some of these tribes, I think. Now, I might be getting a little bit far off on that, but I can't see why it wouldn't happen. So, yeah, I'm very bullish on that. I've been tracking WebAssembly for at least two years now, and it first came out, ASM.js goes back like six or seven years and then what we think of as WebAssembly proper was around, like I think, 2017 is when it really got its act together. So we're at the point now where it's stabilizing, and it's about developer tooling now. Like, you can write it. It's just, can you make it nice enough to write that developers actually want to do it? The written in Rust kind of thing has been present in this conversation already. Like, Dino is written in Rust. That's a perfect example. We talk about Prisma all the time. Like, Prisma is written in Rust. We don't really think of that as this Rust tool that's enabling FSJAM, but it already is right there. Toast is another one I'm interested in. This is Chris Biscardi. He's using Toast. I think it's just like a static site generator, but like Rust is a great tool for that because you want to be able to generate tens of thousands of pages within, you know, minutes. I think it's great. We've got all these moving parts now, which is really cool. So I remember back in 2005 reading the documentation for XML HTTP request, which Microsoft were the only people that actually had it documented at the time because they had actually invented it to act as a way of dynamically sending XML backwards and forwards from the browser. I was looking at this, I think this is really cool. Like I could use this for so many things. So I built a basic library to use it from Rails. So this is before Ajax was even kind of coined as a term. And I was playing with certain parts of it. And I was like, well, I can kind of see how this is cool, but I can't really like see the future of like, I wasn't thinking about what it has now become where, you know, suddenly we had like Google Maps turn up and Gmail and all these kind of apps that then showed us like 
what can happen if you don't have to keep changing the page whenever you're you know doing something in a we didn't even call them apps online. They were just web pages. Like we didn't have to think about that anymore. We could think about them as applications. And I feel that now we're at a similar spot where we can go and look up the specs for things like you know WebRTC and WebAssembly and look at what Rust is doing. But there's this massive gap of imagination, I think, where we can join this to this to this and produce this really cool thing that we can't yet imagine. So I think it's a really great time to be a developer in this space and combining the front end and the back end, whether it is you go from the front end first or the back end first, whatever you're doing, I think this is a really exciting time because there's so much that could be built that we're not quite thinking about yet. Just like no one was thinking about Google Maps or Gmail at some point. Yeah, that's the next thing. So I don't know what it is, but I'm looking forward to whatever it is that everyone produces. What do you think is necessarily better for the open source community when a project is backed by a company or a group of people? Yeah, that's kind of a tricky question. I'm not super opinionated on that, to be honest. I've seen both approaches work. You could also argue that there's kind of a little bit of a hybrid approach, which is like the, you know, the Basecamp approach where they didn't start the company to just do Rails, like they just extracted it from something. And they kind of support it just as almost like a almost like a charitable thing, to be honest, because I can't imagine the fact that they maintain rails actually gains them any customers, the base camp. Like, it does to a certain extent, but it's not their business. It's not like they're a MongoDB incorporated who, you know, deliberately make money from people signing up and you know, playing with the community version and then needing support for the full thing. Basecamp don't make any money off of rails, other than they're using it to build apps. So there is that hybrid model, I think, where some, a company doesn't make money from their open source, but they just do it as a byproduct of their main business. I've seen it work in every different way. There's places that just won't even go anywhere near commercialization. It's just a completely open source thing. More common in like the Linux world in particular. Like you don't see companies springing up around certain technologies there. If something gets big enough, you'll see a foundation pop up, which is perhaps a fourth model to put into that. So I think Rust is forming a foundation right now. Node.js has kind of had a foundation around it for some time. Those sort of projects gain a lot of governance is probably the word I would use, which can be good and bad for the project. It can make it reliable in a way that a company-backed project would be, but it makes it hard to add new features and all that type of thing, and people threaten to do forks and stuff, which has happened with Node in the past, which actually hasn't happened with Rails. That's an interesting thing. I've never even thought about that, but Rails is a project that no one has really threatened to fork, whereas you know Node has been forked twice, once with io.js, which... Sorry, go. That is a good reason for that because DHH never left Rails as the benevolent dictator, whereas Ryan did. Ryan around 2012 basically said, Node is finished. This is actually what he said. He said, Node is done, so I'm going to go on and do some other stuff. And then you had NPM became the thing. So NPM became in charge of Node, but also you had Joint had all the people who were working on Node. So you had this weird tension between Joint and NPM. And then you had people often like Russia who are just like hackers and want to get their PRs merged. That's what triggered the initial fork with IOJS, this Russian hacker who was just like mad that Joint wasn't merging his pull request. So he forked it and then everyone else rallied around that as this reason to then get all these new V8 improvements and stuff. And they ended up getting a lot out of it. And then that's what led the two foundations merging back together. But all of this happened because the guy who actually created it in the first place had pieced out years ago. I guess going back to the question about whether that's good or not, there's pros and cons of every different model that 
I kind of just rattled through, I guess. So no, I don't have a specific answer to that question. I guess we've covered the options. And, you know, unless a company is, I mean, the one thing that I find kind of boring just as a developer is when a company builds a product and it's kind of open source or semi-open source. Like, you know, there's people that would say, look, this is definitely not open source because it's not got all these right things in the license, but whatever. Like, But I don't like it when a company d- opens something, but then you can just tell it's a thin veneer for being commercial about the product. At least with something like Redis, for example, which is kind of a common sort of data structure server or cache server, sometimes people use it as. At least with that, someone built that independently and it became popular and then a company kind of acquired it and now offers commercial services that add to Redis's functionality, but they haven't taken over the actual underlying project as such. So I use Redis all over the place for all sorts of things and I haven't paid anyone a cent for it. I like that approach, but I don't like it when a company is like, oh yeah, we've got this open source kind of community version of our product. Yeah, but you can't use it in anything unless you like share every single piece of source code that you use. And it's just like, ugh, it's just kind of dull. Like if you want me to buy something, just make me pay for it. Like you're basically giving me a free trial. So that's the only model I don't really like, but I can also see the reasons why people do it because otherwise you end up with people like AWS coming along and saying, oh, here's the source code for a database service that we don't currently have. We're going to run a managed version of this and not give you a single cent. So there's so many issues like that to deal with in the open source world that it's confusing, it's complex, and I can't you know, deem any one way to be better than the other. The main reason I asked the question was it's quite easy to look at things like Facebook and say, Facebook made React, and React wouldn't be where it is now without Facebook. But then you look at... Facebook's money. Exactly. And how long is it until Facebook commercializes React? Server-side components? Mm, Could they charge for them? I'm not convinced. I don't think... No, hard hard no on that. (laughs) I don't see Facebook... Facebook have never, I mean, at least in my eyes, really shown a big interest in entering the cloud space. They've clearly got a lot of infrastructure, but it's not like they've ever released any kind of products. Not in the same way that Amazon, Microsoft, or whatever have. So I won't be concerned about that. But the fact is, they now, you know, they use React so heavily on the front end, which wasn't the case. Like when React first came out, it was actually kind of more of an experimental thing for them. Um, But now they're writing specifically about like, well, we use React everywhere on the front end now with Facebook. So they have a huge vested interest in keeping it going. I don't think they necessarily have a vested interest in having the rest of the community keep it going. They just need it for themselves. But the fact is they benefit from everyone contributing components to it and whatever anyway. But they're so huge that any kind of money they spend on React is basically the rounding error in their lunch bill. Like it's it's nothing to Facebook. I think this is really important that we don't talk about. Being the torchbearer as a company, the company's faceless. It could be around for 200 years and still be maintaining something but when we look at these projects and these things that are not even built yet who's going to build them who's going to maintain them who's going to keep them up to date and that's such a big problem with open source that there's no one answer with fs jam every single framework so far has been a group of people choosing to say i want to do this better none of them are backed by companies, to what I understand. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that Redwood JS is backed by a billionaire. Okay, so so Redwood JS is backed by a foundation called Preston Warner Ventures, which is Tom's foundation. So it is not backed necessarily by a company, but it's backed by a foundation 
by, yes, like you say, a dude who is a billionaire. So I tell people it's the passion project of an eccentric billionaire. Because it literally <laughs> is. And that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> it, it is. But it's this thing about being a torchbearer and what you said about Node a minute ago. He peaced out. Who was the guy? What, Ryan. Ryan Dahl. Ryan Dahl, yeah. Ryan Dahl. He peaced out and was like, I'm done with it. See you later. It's this interesting thing of if you're the creator, should you be the maintainer? If we could separate them two things and just say, I've created it and then I no longer want to maintain it. Would open source be better or worse? I don't know. Um, It seems to have been better so far because obviously if you do something completely commercially, it depends upon someone acquiring the business or... Yeah, just like running it as a business, which is obviously a completely different kettle of fish to running an open source project. I mean, the good thing about an open source project is it only lives and survives if people are actively using it and actively interested in it. So it's actually a really good gauge of whether a project is any good or not as to whether it's still alive or not. So like jQuery, for example, people moan about jQuery like that is everywhere. But the fact is, it is everywhere. People are still working on it. It's not the most attractive thing to be working on, but it's used so heavily that it's living on anyway. And that really is a sign of just how good it is. I'm not going to make any bones about it. It's jQuery is fantastic. And it's still heavily used. And a lot of people turn to it as their first thing to use in a project. So I think projects like that really prove that the open source model works because if something's being used, it's going to get maintained. Yeah. In fact, CoreJS is probably a one counter example recently that I can think to that. And I think that's more because the keys to kind of the kingdom with that are in one person's hands. And there's been some arguments over, like, should CoreJS be forked and so on. But that's a rare counterexample to that, where something's heavily used and not many people are contributing to it. And that's because of the maintainer. As long as the maintainer's got the right attitude and is is happy for something to live on, then we've not got a problem. And that was true of Ryan Dahl. It's true of John Rezig, who's not involved with jQuery anymore, as far as I understand it. These sort of people may have stepped back, but they stepped back and not had a power vacuum. They've allowed people to come in. That's happened with Redis recently as well. The founder has stepped back. So when you have benevolent, and that's I guess that's the whole benevolent dictator for life thing. Well, if they chop the for life off of the end, as long as they're benevolent and they give the project over to someone else or say, look, community, you can run this thing. Great. If they're like, no, I'm going to keep the commit bits for this and I'm not going to let anyone update anything because I built this and I don't want anyone getting the credit. That's when things get really, really bad. But we don't see a lot of that. So yeah, happy days. I guess my final question is, what do you think of closed open programs and things? I don't know if you know, or you heard of Remix Run, done by Michael Jackson and Brian Florence. Brian, yes. Yeah. Is this like closed open thing? Yeah. What do you think of that? I guess there's two ways to, to look at it. So one is that some people refer to closed open as being things like I mentioned earlier with like MongoDB, where things have got now got a license that aren't what you would call truly open source. And so they kind of restrict what you can do so that people like AWS and whatever can't just like rip it off. So you've got that kind of closed open. But then, yes, this is the other thing that has kind of come along in recent years where I've actually seen people say, I'm working on this cool little open source thing and I'm going to only let my GitHub sponsors see it. Until I get 100 or 200 of them or whatever it is, and then I'll release it completely for free so everyone can access it. Now, I mean, it's, it's a growth hack. People who are really, really interested will think, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll spend $5 a month, $10 a month to have a look. But then secondly, the fact when they get 100 sponsors on their GitHub profile, it makes them a lot easier to get the next 100, the next 100, and so on. Like, it's really hard to get those first group 
So we can kind of almost use it like to get people in, into that kind of funnel and social proof and everything. Does it work as a business model? It seems to be working for the Remix guys because I keep seeing good stuff about what they're doing. I've not paid a huge amount of attention to it because I find that type of thing extremely hard to promote unless there's some super compelling like video or something that says, look, here's what this magical thing does. I find it really hard to sell to a readership and say, oh, yeah, it's this really cool thing. It's like $200 and I can't really tell you much about it because I've not used it yet. So it kind of self-limits itself. But I don't know what their plan is about eventually making it a lot more open, a lot more freely available. Maybe you know more about that than me because I've not dug into it. What you're talking about with MongoDB, the term people use for that is called open core. So there's the core and then you build services around it. There isn't really a term for what Remix is doing. And I don't think they would use the term closed open because they're they're not claiming it to be open sourced in, in any respect whatsoever. They're saying we've done lots of open source work in our lives. We think it's great. This is not an open source project. This is a product we are selling. That's <laughs> yeah. not even part of the plan. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. The idea is that it supports things like React Router, but that Remix is a paid product. It is not an open source project. It is not intended to be an open source project. They're saying this is a product we are selling. So for them, they're just like, we need to sell a certain amount. And then that's going to cover the cost because that's how a business works. So they're like, we're a business. We're selling a thing. We need to fund people at the end of the day. Software costs money. And if they're not making it, then it's not being made at the end of the day. I support it. Do you have any questions, Anthony? I was just going to say, thank you for being here, Peter. I really love getting people's perspectives who've been in the industry for a while and have seen you know, a lot of these a lot of these developments because I'm, I'm a huge history nerd and huge history buff about all this stuff but like i'm i'm coming in you know so so new and so fresh to all this compared to someone with you know a little more a little more experience why don't you let us know where people can can get a hold of you and where's like the best way to to follow what you're doing i will have a couple of things to mention so yeah the first thing is probably follow me on twitter that's the best place the most consistent place so i'm just peter c on there so that's p-e-t-e-r-c on uh, twitter Although I'm messing around with Clubhouse as well now, so I'm Peter Cooper on there. If anyone happens to be using Clubhouse, it's not very popular at the moment, but, you know, kind of cool to mess around with. What is Clubhouse? Oh, it's like an audio. um, It's a new social platform? Yeah, it's a new social platform. It's kind of a bit of an American thing at the moment, but it's starting to take off. It's like an audio chat thing. You drop in on channels of people and they're talking about all sorts of whatever. Yeah, it's beginning to be developers moving on to there, but it's, yeah, very businessy at the moment. I'll talk to you about that after the show. Maybe I'll see if I can sort you out. But yeah, so that's kind of fun. But one of our titles that we publish, and it's not written by me at all, but we actually have a Jamstack newsletter, which you just go to jamstack.email. It's run by Brian Rinaldi. He's been in the Jamstack space for you know, quite some time. He will be on the show, and he has published a couple of my articles in this in this newsletter. Oh, well, I'll just do a little you know, promotion for him in advance of that. So, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I don't get involved with that newsletter at all. It just basically, he writes it, it gets sent. Yeah, and I guess, you know, also, if anyone else is from Lincolnshire, like me and Chris here and you ever come across the uh, Lincoln Hack event, you should come on down because hopefully when these lockdowns and everything have finished, we'll all get back to uh, being able to hack in the same room again together at some point. So yeah, Lincoln Hack is the only thing in Lincolnshire for doing that. So it's the only one I tend to go to because I don't like traveling around too much. So those are my shout outs. Well, thank you for your time, Peter. It's been great. Yeah, it's been good. I can't wait to see what you build next time at one of these hacks. Who knows?
need to speak to Rob. It's funny because I'm still an admin on the Lincoln Hack Facebook page. Oh, okay. He never removed me. Anthony, you do not know Rob, but he's like, I would say, a giant personality in the Lincoln tech scene. And by Lincoln tech scene, pretty much me, Rob, and Chris Roebuck are the only people that write JavaScript in this community. What's his Twitter? What's his Twitter handle? Does he even tweet anymore? I don't know. It's probably something uh, like... That, that he doesn't exist in the tech scene if he's not tweeting. No, his he's, he's, account is protected. <laughs> yeah, his account's protected. He's very... Uh, he speaks a lot about how much he hates social media. He's one of those type of people. And That's funny. About I hate social media, media. too. Yeah. I just spend all day on it. <laughs> it sucked you in. <laughs>